You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. I don't do a lot of warnings before episodes, because I tend to trust that you're one button away from turning me off if things get too much, and also because I'm a bad overall judge of what's offensive, freaky, or disgusting. This episode is offensive, freaky, and disgusting. It's October, and October is spooky. So I thought I'd spend the month huddling around the campfire with you a bit. And this story got, well, it's a lot. There aren't a bunch of visceral sound effects or lurid, gory descriptions, and I'm not turning into sword and scale or anything, but the topic is gross. The topic is disturbing, and there's just no getting around that. So, that's your warning. Also, I want to apologize before we get started to any and all of you subscribers who were inconvenienced, annoyed, or frustrated by a whole bunch of old episodes of The Constant suddenly being pushed onto your phones a week or two back. Something went wrong with my hosting service, I still don't know what, but I'm assured it's fixed and everything should be good. Fingers crossed. It was a big confusing mess on my end and I hope it wasn't too much so on yours. So thanks for sticking with me. All right, on with the show. On September 22, 2009, police in Peru discovered a small container containing an illicit substance at a bus station in Lima and put the location under watch. A month and a half later, on November 3rd, they arrested Serapio Marcos Veramendi Principe when he retrieved three similar bottles from the station. Lab tests were ordered to confirm the nature of the contents, and Principe was interrogated. Police identified three of Principe's co-conspirators— Elmer Segundo Castilleres Aguero, and Adina Estea Claudio, and the leader of the gang, Hilario Cudena Simone, and managed to track them down and arrest them on November 20th. The lead prosecutor, Jorge Sanz Corroz, soon laid out the case for the public. Principe and Aguero were charged on weapons and drug offenses, Claudio also for drugs. More critically, all four were charged with murder. At first, just one, the killing of Abel Matos Aranda, on November 13th, police had discovered the partially buried body of Aranda in the state of Huanco. Authorities stated that the substance in the bus station jars was taken from him. But that was just the beginning. Eventually, the four came to be suspects in 46 murders in the city of Trujillo, each and every one of them committed for the jarred white stuff they moved from bus station to bus station. It was a lucrative business. 
According to prosecutor Sans Coroz, the gang, who police named Pishtacos, earned $15,000 per liter of the stuff. Big, easy money. As long as you had the stomach for murder. And quadruple amputation. And decapitation. It was big, easy money as long as you had the stomach to eviscerate the torsos, hang them from hooks above lit candles. As long as you had the stomach to collect the fat that dripped off of your slowly rendering victims. The Pishtacos, Peruvian authorities said, were in the business of murdering people, a whole lot of people, for their fat, which they then sold to unscrupulous cosmetics companies and plastic surgeons. But the real story of the Pishtacos gang was worse than that. Much worse. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Chewing the Fat. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. There is no deeper taboo than cannibalism. Recently, psychologists Jared Piazza and Neil McClatchy performed a study to test the depth of that taboo. Here. We can recreate it right now. Think about your best friend. Say they come to you today with the news that they're dying of some natural, non-contagious cause. They say that once they die, they'd like you to thoroughly cook and eat a small part of their body as an act of remembrance and honor. Would you do it? No, no, that's too hard. Let's ask a softer question. Forget about whether you personally would do it or not. Instead, Ask yourself, would it be wrong, morally, to fulfill such a request? If you're anything like Piazza and McClatchy's randomly selected participants, about 50% of you, despite every health, safety, and personal assurance, say yes. It is wrong to eat human flesh, regardless of consent, regardless of sanitation, regardless of circumstance. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Among film nerds, there are horror movie fans, there are horror movie fans. And then there are cannibal movie fans. The darkest, most gruesome subgenre, with movies like Cannibal Holocaust or Make Them Die Slowly that even slasher lovers draw a line at. In real-life reports, like The Donner Party or the 1972 crash landing in the Andes, we can truly see how deep the aversion is. Facing death and surrounded by a plentiful source of potential food, bodies, The survivors of such incidents push themselves first to the brink of starvation, 
choosing to consume inedible objects like belt and shoe leather before finally giving in to human flesh. All of which is weird, because through most of our history, people have been surprisingly cool with cannibalism. Let's go back to one of our oldest of frenemies, Pliny the Elder. In Book 28 of his Naturalist Historia, Pliny has this to say about epilepsy. The following are given to epileptics. Mare's milk, a horse's chestnut in sweetened vinegar, goat's meat roasted on a funeral pyre, and goat fat boiled down with an equal weight of bull's gall and stored in a gallbladder to prevent it touching the ground. The patient drinks this in water while standing upright. So far, so... Well, not not good, definitely not good, but at least just regular gross. A couple paragraphs later, though, he has this to say. Epileptics even drink the blood of gladiators, from living cups, as it were. It is an appalling sight to see wild animals drink the blood of gladiators in the arena, and yet those who suffer from epilepsy think it is the most effective cure for their disease, to absorb a person's warm blood while he is still breathing, and to draw out his actual living soul straight from his wounds, even though it is not human to apply one's lips even to the wounds of wild beasts. Others seek a cure through eating the leg marrow and brains of infants. According to Pliny, if you were a gladiator, you not only had to fear death and dismemberment, but that, as you lay dying, stabbed through by a gladius or trident or what have you, you'd be beset upon by the crowd, looking to suck the hot, fresh blood straight from your wound, or even tearing out your liver to eat it raw right there in the Colosseum. Wait, though, you might think. Why are we listening to Pliny? Pliny's full of shit a solid 80% of the time. He's a regular Aristotle. And that's right. But we can believe Pliny on this count because not only was he around to actually witness the blood drinking, but he also wasn't alone. The Roman encyclopediaist Aulus Cornelius Cellus wrote about epileptics drinking gladiator blood in his first century work De Medicina. The early Christian apologist Tertullian says the same as does the 6th century physician Alexander of Tralles. The drinking of gladiator blood and eating of gladiator livers was a regular enough occurrence that by the 1st century it was commodified, as in, Hot, fresh gladiator blood! Get your hot gladiator blood here! But around 400 AD, gladiatorial combat was forbidden, and consequently, the larders of gladiator offal went empty. Those looking for medicinal people parts would have to search out another way to get their fix. And boy, would they. From the Roman period on, there was no time when Europeans weren't fairly readily and widely using blood, organs, and body parts medicinally or magically, even though through a lot of that time they were also demonizing foreigners as cannibalistic scavengers. Ah, white people. Some of the earliest documented medical uses of humans, I need to pause and appreciate that so much of my life now revolves around starting sentences like that. Some of the earliest documented medical uses of humans come from witches, whose blood was long understood to contain great magical power. Before witchcraft became explicitly connected with Satanism, it was understood that her abilities derived from a familiar often a cat or a toad, which had to be fed blood, pus, or milk, some combination usually, either by a fingertip pinprick or, better still, via a special third witch nipple hidden beneath the breast. 
The intellectuals of medieval Europe had hoity-toity ideas about how humors and contagions interacted with witch blood, but to the common people, the explanation was more straightforward. There was, they reckoned, only a limited amount of good in the world. If your cow got sick, that meant its health had escaped to some other person's cow. If you received a new chicken, some neighbor's chicken must have died. This zero-sum view of the world was named limited good by anthropologist George Foster, and it deeply pervaded the peasantry of Europe. A witch was, at heart, a person who hoarded the good of the world for herself, stealing it from the community and storing it deep within her blood. Therefore, if you were having a bad month of farming or a scratchy throat you couldn't be rid of or any misfortune, great or small, the best solution would be to find the nearest witch and scratch her with something until she bled. With her veins opened, her surplus good would be released back into its proper place in the world. It didn't take a huge leap of logic to realize that instead of letting the blood flow out equally into the universe, a person could instead drink that blood for themselves and get the good stuff directly. But it wasn't just witches. For centuries, military battles ended with the victors collecting the blood and flesh of the fallen for their own medical purposes. In this case, there was no need to call upon ancient medical theories or some philosophical notion of limited good. The logic of taking from fallen soldiers was far more direct. They were young, strong, and healthy. And so, in their deaths, that youth, strength, and vigor could be borrowed. In the 1200s, St. Albertus Magnus recommended distilling healthy male blood as a panacea for all disease. In the 15th century, the Italian priest Marsilio Ficino wrote that the elderly could regain their vitality by sucking the blood of happy, headstrong adolescents. The elegance of that idea lived long into the Renaissance, but it didn't lie still and static. In fact, it's in the Renaissance that Europe got really creative about eating people. First, let's back up a little bit. In case it needs saying, medieval Europe was really bad at medicine for a whole host of reasons. To be fair, nobody was good at medicine, but Europeans were especially behind the curve. Ditto on astronomy, mathematics, and, well, let's just say science generally. And literature. And most things. At the turn of the last millennium, European scholars, such that they were, largely understood that the Arabic and Persian worlds were way ahead of them in all these things. And so, Europeans of the 11th century and onward looked to them to advance their own knowledge. One piece of Arabic medicine that Europeans borrowed was pitch, as in asphalt. Pitch, or asphalt, or bitumen, is a tremendously useful substance. Since at least the 5th century BC, people had used it to waterproof their roofs, seal their ships, and mortar their bricks. But it had more interesting uses than that. For instance, in the Arab world, it was used in various salves, poultices, and antidotes. And it was that knowledge that Europeans came upon somewhere around the 12th century. If the great physicians of Mohammedan used it, it must be good. But where could Europeans get themselves this miracle substance? This is where things get wacky. First, let's just acknowledge that asphalt isn't good medicine. So 
the upper limit of how this whole thing could turn out is already pretty sorry. But Europeans weren't looking for asphalt. They were looking for the Arabic word for it, which itself came from the Persian word for wax, mumia. In the late 12th century, an Arab physician by the name of Serapion the Younger wrote about mumia solves in his work, The Book of Simple Medicaments. But when Serapion's book was translated into Latin by Simon Genesis, he stumbled over what mumia meant. Because mumia had another use, older than salves or even waterproofing. The ancient Egyptians had used pitch in their elaborate embalming rituals. And Simon understood the word mumia not to mean the pitch, but the body. What was this miraculous Arabic medicine Europe was searching for? Mummies. Let's make sure we're all here. Searching for medical asphalt, Europeans mistranslated the Arabic word for it, mumia, to mean embalmed Egyptian corpses. European trade in medicinal mumia was brisk from the 14th century onward, peaking towards the 15th and 16th with a very ringing endorsement from our boy Paracelsus, the father of medicine. Paracelsus believed that bits of ground-up mummy could be used in potions, poultices, and treacles to cure virtually any illness, from plague to cancer to syphilis to snakebite. The popularity of mumia in medieval Europe can't be overstated. Shakespeare mentions it in Macbeth, Othello, and Julius Caesar. It comes up in Julius Spencer's Fairy Queen. And John Donne's Love's Alchemy, one of the greatest poems in the English language, ends with these two stanzas. "'Tis not the bodies, Mary, but the minds, which he in her angelic finds, would swear as justly that he hears in that day's rude horse minstrelsy the spheres." Hope not for mind in women, at their best sweetness and wit. They are but mummy-possessed. Aw, that's sweet. Maybe the question has already occurred to you. Where were Europeans getting all this mummy from? Funny you should ask. The early days of Egyptology were largely centered around getting that sweet, sweet mummy to eat. But there were limits even to this. How many Egyptian tombs could people really pillage, after all? Answer, a lot, but not enough to say demand. In the 1500s, physicians and pharmacists began to fudge it. New sources of mumia were sought among those who died desiccated in the Sahara. Easier still would be to find some starving, plague-ridden pauper and stick his corpse in a low oven for a few days to cook. What was the difference, really? These counterfeit mummies were often found out and exposed as frauds, but the scarcity of the real thing meant that scholars had to devise new recipes if Europe was to be kept in good supply. One such recipe came from Oswald Kroll, a German doctor and alchemist who advised those looking to create fresh mumia to choose the carcass of a red man, meaning red-headed, whole, clear without blemish, of the age of 24 years, that hath been hanged, broke upon a wheel, or thrust through. The poor Coppertop's corpse was then to be chopped into tiny pieces, seasoned with herbs, aloe, and myrrh, pestled in wine, and left to dry until it turned into ginger jerky. 
For the first century or so, it was thought that there was something special about the ancient mummification process that made mumia so curative. But as mummies became rarer and rarer, the supposed method of action of mumia shifted. According to Kral and Paracelsus, it wasn't the pitch or the herbs or the time or the curse that made mummies such wonderful medicine but just that same old human vitality that had made soldiers and gladiators such a good get all those years back. The vital spirit of the dead remained, at least in part, within the flesh, and consuming the right part in the right way was therefore obviously good for what ailed you. Or, as Leonardo da Vinci put it, we preserve our life with the death of others. In a dead thing, insensate life remains which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. As the mumia craze dried up, sorry, in the 16 and 1700s, it was replaced by less exotic corpse medicines. When Charles II returned to England following Oliver Cromwell's brief revolutionary reign, he purchased a recipe from Jonathan Goddard, Cromwell's physician, for the exorbitant price of 6,000 pounds. The coif came, through Charles, to be known as the King's Drops the most sought-after physic of the age. The King's Drops were a solution of alcohol into which was dissolved gratings of human skull, acquired for the royals and gentry via the robbing of Irish graves. Charles drank his drops almost nightly and made an especially heavy regimen of the skull juice when he fell ill in 1685. It was the last thing he consumed before his death four days later. It was the last drink administered to Queen Mary some 15 years after that. If you didn't want to make a solution out of Irish skulls, you could instead have them ground into bread or sprinkled on food. A whole skull could be fashioned into a cup from which one could drink, hoping to slowly leach out its medicinal benefits. Or you could place the skull out in the garden to collect moss, which you might then grind into a styptic that you could snuff to staunch nosebleeds. The Irish skull business was so big in the late 17th century that the crown levied a one shilling tax on each cranium. While human skull was thought to be good for treating pretty much whatever you might like, it was mainly for illnesses of the brain, migraine, epilepsy, and even depression. As one Renaissance physician explained, when a person died, all of the cerebral benefits of their brain mass were stuck inside the head with nowhere to go but to slowly leach into the skull. If that was the justification, though, why not just use the brain itself? Oh, that's right, they did. There are at least two recipes still around from the 17th century for creating spirit of brain. One from Johann Schroeder, who was the first chemist to identify arsenic as an element, says to infuse human brain with lavender water. The other, from English physician John French, who wrote the definitive text on distillation, instructs the apothecary to grind the brain into a fine mush before steeping it in a mixture of red wine and horse shit for a year and a half. All of these cures, from skull moss to mulled brain wine, were the business of the upper crust. They were solutions conjured by the credentialed and for the landed. But what about the common man? What sort of cannibalism existed for your average working-class Joe who couldn't afford to dig up a mummy or an Irishman? For most of the peasantry of medieval Europe, a visit to a formal physician was out of the question. 
Instead, the unwashed masses turned to their own class of healer, the executioner. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If there's something getting in the way of your happiness or ambitions, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. With BetterHelp, you can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment on your own time and at your own pace via secure video, phone, chat, or text sessions with your own therapist. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, LGBT matters, trauma, relationships, anxiety, sleeplessness, and more. And anything you share with them is confidential. And if at any time you're not satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one. BetterHelp's secure, convenient, professional counseling is available worldwide and as soon as 24 hours after signing up. Best of all, it's affordable, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. And constant listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word, the constant. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash the constant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Discount code, one word, the constant. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Medieval Christianity felt that the spirit was the important thing and that the flesh was below proper consideration. This was backed up by Pliny and, say it with me, fucking Aristotle, who wrote that the learned ought not to concern themselves with matters of the physical body. Even into the Renaissance, the practice of anatomy was considered lowly and sinful, which meant that nobody, not the academics or the physicians or the philosophers, knew anything about what was inside a body, let alone how one was meant to work. But the executioner did. Executioners were ostracized. Western society believed there was a need for the professional state murderer, but that didn't make it any less unsavory. 
It was a terrible job. The pay wasn't great, the work was irregular, and you lived under a constant shadow of shame for doing it. Not to mention, of course, that you had to murder people every few months or weeks or even days. And most of the time, the local executioner was also the local torturer. But between the torture and the murder, the executioner had some of the only first-hand experience of the body. So throughout Europe, the profession of executioner-physician became most of the polity's main medical point of contact. To some degree, if you had the choice between going to a 13th century doctor or a 13th century hangman, you were better off with the latter. After all, if you broke a leg in 1254, would you rather be treated by some academic hack who'd read about healing bones from a thousand-year-old Roman? Or would you like to go to the guy who breaks people's bones for a living? The executioner, at least, knew how to send a tortured man out of the chamber on his own two feet. Let's not oversell it, though. While the executioner physicians of France or Germany might have been a better option than their accredited counterparts, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement. Executioners might have stood a relatively better chance at closing a wound or setting a bone, but they still knew next to nothing about healing. They made and sold the same kind of odd herbal remedies and curious medical advice that you'd have gotten from folklore of the time, except that they had a certain class of ingredients available to them that you couldn't find at the chemist or the wise woman. Body parts. Like the gladiatorial matches before them, public executions were a spectacle, a regular pastime of the people. And, like the gladiatorial matches, this was in part due to macabre fascination and the general boredom of yesteryear, but also, also like the gladiatorial matches, executions represented an opportunity to buy good human bits for all your medical needs. You could slip the executioner some cash to get that hot, fresh blood, but you could also pay him to fashion a human blood jam for you. In fact, when Charles II's dad, Charles I, was killed, the masses mopped up his blood with handkerchiefs. A king's blood was special because it could treat scrofula, a lymph node infection that was known to the English as the king's evil. Got a bad hemorrhoid? Well, you're in luck. For a wee bit of cash, the executioner will give you access to the condemned man's sweat, which you can rub like ever so much cortisone upon your inflamed butthole. Balding? The executioner can help whip you up a literal hair tonic made from the hair of the condemned. In 1600s France, it was understood that a wig made of corpse hair soaked in bird's blood would render the wearer invisible. Toothache? You're in luck. The dead dude here is loaded with teeth. Put a couple in a sack, wear the sack around your neck, and just wait until the ache subsides. In a hurry? Well, then simply dislodge a single tooth from the dead man's mouth and rub it against your own. The touch of the corpse's hand was even more valuable. There was virtually nothing it couldn't cure. Aches or acne, hemorrhoid or hernia, a good rub on the problem area by the mitts of the mort would do the trick. Because the potency of the touch would fade with use, it was a normal part of the show that the executioner would choose who got the first touch, like the creepiest of gallows auctions. And if you could manage to buy one of the fingers and hang it in your barn, all of your horses would be healthy. Between bone setting, wound treating, touch selling, tooth hawking, hair pureeing, sweat collecting, and blood marmalading, 
executioners could make up for a bit of their bad pay and lowly status. But the two main commodities of the hangman were human skin and, especially, human fat. Skin, dried and tanned into leathery straps, could be used for all sorts of things. Wear it wrapped around your neck to prevent goiters, paste it around a pregnant woman's belly to ensure an easy birth. Or, if you're the sentimental type, you could purchase a strip for a bookmark to simply commemorate the time you took your son to see an embezzler being publicly beheaded in front of his weeping family. The cat's in the cradle. Fat's uses were more varied still. And for the executioner, it came with a big benefit. Quick or cunning onlookers might be able to snatch a cup of blood or a bit of hair. And certainly running up to touch the deceased's hands to your bulbos was easy enough. But nobody but the executioner knew how to collect, render, and distill human fat into its many useful forms. The fat of a thief could be poured into a mold to produce a magical candle to make your enemies sleepy. The fat of a murderer could be processed into a powerful love potion, naturally. The fat of anybody, regardless of their crime, could be used to make fine soaps and perfumes. Yet it was the medicinal uses of human fat that were the most important and the most profitable. To get an idea of just how common this was, we need only consider how many names there were for this product. The fancy Latin term was axon humanus, literally meaning human fat, but it also went by hangman salve, balm of the sun, poor sinner's fat, pinguedo, adeps humani, or, most disturbingly, man's grease. As numerous as its names were its purposes, as an ointment it could heal scars, wounds, contusions, sciatica, or broken bones, consumed, it could cure gout, pneumonia, or smallpox. Virtually anything, from acne to aches to sores to fatal disease, could be remedied by a bit of the old man's grease. The selling of human fat, by whatever name, was a major source of income for European executioners, at once because demand was high, but also because they more or less controlled the whole supply. But that began to change in the early 1700s. The Enlightenment brought lots of tumult to the hangman's job. For starters, there were fewer hangings, as European nations began to question the ethicality and efficacy of capital punishment. Even those who were A-OK with state-sponsored murder at least began questioning whether it should be a public event, or at least whether it was a good look to have the masses running up onto the gallows to stroke their faces with the hands of the twitching dead. As importantly, the medieval aversion physicians had held for anatomy was super over. Medical students were expected to finally get their hands dirty. In many places, especially England, it became a standard part of the death penalty that the cadavers be delivered for science and medicine. Even in places where the executioner maintained theoretical access to the departed, laws cropped up from the 1760s onward, limiting their ability to harvest or sell products from them. These were often pushed by the academic and medical establishment who were sick of the competition. Not that said medical establishment was above the trade themselves. In the early 1800s, a scandal rocked the French Academy in Paris when it was discovered that the medical students there were draining and selling fat from their subjects. One student was caught greasy-handed with 2,000 liters of the stuff. The Parisian medical students sold fat not just for the typical medical purposes, but also as blowtorch fuel, axle grease, and even 
cooking fat. Boo. At the turn of the 19th century, the end of the hangman's medical trade was pretty well complete, to the degree that some cities began offering compensation for the loss of revenue. In Turin, the city approved a yearly payment of 24 silver coins to the executioner to replace the money lost by no longer being able to sell fat. While one source of supply dried up, demand did not. The 19th century saw a number of fraudulent skin, blood, bone, and fat dealers, as well as executioners and doctors, petitioning, usually unsuccessfully, for the right to sell flesh. And when that didn't work, they sold it under the table. The last attempt on record to drink the blood of the executed dates all the way back to... 1908? Holy shit, there were airplanes then. In Germany, the pharmaceutical company MERS was still selling injectable fat for the treatment of scar tissue into the 1920s under the trade name Humanol. Ugh, no, I take it back. That is the most disgusting word for it. Humanol. Arguably more disquieting were the long-ranging rumors of murderers killing to get their hands on precious fat. In Spain, the legend of the Sacamanteca or fat extractor, also known as mantequero, or fat seller, dates back almost as far as 1793, when the legal production and sale of corpse medicine ceased there. In some tellings, he's a man, where in others he's a monster disguised as a man, but almost universally, the Sacamanteca is an outsider, a beggar, traitor, or hermit, who kills to procure fat, whether to feed a magical craving or to sell as soap or medicine. The Sacamanteca isn't purely mythological, though. There are a handful of confirmed, recorded cases supported by the historical and legal record. In 1910, Francisco Ortega of Gador, Spain, was diagnosed with tuberculosis. He visited the local curandera, or shaman, who advised him to seek out a barber and healer named Francisco Leona. Leona offered to cure Ortega for the price of 3,000 reals, plus his help in the crime. On June 27th, the two Franciscos chloroformed a seven-year-old boy named Bernardo Gonzalez Perez and stuffed him into a bag. They carried the sack out to privacy, stabbed him in the chest, mixed his blood with sugar, and drank it. Then, Leona put the boy on the hard ground, smashed his head in with a rock, removed the fat from his stomach, concocted a poultice out of it, and applied it to Ortega's tubercular chest. It is entirely possible that more Sacamantecas once roamed Spain, but were never caught. In Peru, there is a similar folklore monster, though its origin might be separate from its Spanish counterpart, as it appears to go back to the early days of the conquistadors, who Native Americans witnessed using the fat of fallen enemy soldiers to treat their wounds. Still, the basic premise is the same. A man, or monster disguised as man, who lives out in the wilderness, snatching up innocents to steal their fat. In Peru, this creature is called Pishtaco, as in the Pishtaco's gang. Principe, Aguero, Claudio, and Simone, the Pishtaco's gang. According to General Felix Murga of the Peruvian National Police, the four were responsible for around 46 murders between them. 
all for the fat of the victims, which they traded through a clandestine route of bus station drop points. But which use of fat would have people, supposedly Italian nationals, paying 15 grand per liter and buying up... uh, How many liters of fat are in 60 people? Oh God, no, I don't want to Google that. I have read so many terrible things to make this episode already. Let's just... It's a lot of fat at a very high price. For what? The going theory was that they were making soap, like the Spanish Sacamanteca and serial killer Manuel Blanco Romasanta, or else for plastic surgery or other black market cosmetic purposes. But the price tag didn't make sense for that. Thousands of dollars for a bar of human fat soap? And anyway, there's plenty of fat being liposuctioned out of patients in Lima all the time. If a black market were going to develop for it in the plastic surgery world, wouldn't they just close that circle? It'd be a lot cheaper, that's for sure. And bonus, no murder required. General Murga said that he suspected the Pishtakos gang were brujas, witches, and that the fat was critical to their magics. Maybe. Maybe the purported buyers were like Francisco Ortega, suffering from some medical malady from which they'd hoped to be unctuously delivered. But no, I told you up top that the story wasn't just worse than feared, but much worse. And that actual story came from investigative journalist Ricardo Usida, who, at nearly the same time as the Vistacos gang announcement, filed a story for Puder magazine, alleging an extrajudicial police death squad working in Trujillo. It was a huge story. Or it would have been, had General Felix Murga of the National Police not announced the far more sensational arrest of the fat-stealing Pishtacos gang. In Uceda's reporting, he found a large number of alleged criminals who were shot and disappeared by the police. How large a number? Forty-six. Two weeks after the announcement of the Pishtacos gang and the ripples of the incredible story of murder for fat, General Felix Murga was removed from his post, and the National Police released a statement. We know that for centuries, even millennia, people traded in blood and hair, teeth and fat. So, in one sense, the statement from the National Police was incorrect. But in a more important way, it was frighteningly accurate. The Pishtacos gang had never existed. No justice has ever been delivered for the dead. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, and Kevin McLeod. This episode was brought to you by my lovely Patreon supporters, with special thanks to Justin D. Malcolm, Brian Ward, Leah Martena, James Allenspock, Sam Hesmer, Brian A. Hunt, Antonio Pettit, Philip Piper, Travis Morgan, and Steve Schmidt. If you'd like to join them, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash the constant and signing up. Last week, I was at the paper machete talking about impeachment. If you wish you could have heard that, you still can. By becoming a Patreon supporter, you get access to the constant secret feed, 
where I upload bonus episodes and content, including that performance and an upcoming one. This weekend, October 10th through the 12th, I will be at Sound Education in Boston. On Friday night, I'll be on a panel with Hub & Spoke's own Tamar Avishai talking about how to make true, dark stories like this one listenable. And on Saturday, I will be presenting a new live episode of the show. Since I'm in Boston, home of some of the world's finest universities, I thought I'd tell the story of the worst university ever. If you're around Boston, you should check it out. Go to soundeducation.fm for details and tickets. But if you're not around Boston, I will be uploading that story into the bonus feed, too. In two weeks, we'll be back with another story about mummies, but this one should be more spooky, less grotesque. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the Chicago Botanical Gardens, at which you can see the Titan Arum, or giant corpse flower which blooms with the scent of rotting death once every seven to ten years, and which is used medicinally to treat stomach ailments, fever, swelling, and diarrhea, this has been The Constant. Hot, fresh gladiator blood! Get your hot gladiator blood here! Now nah, we should do it in more of a Chicago. We need to do it in a Chicago accent. Hot, fresh gladiator blood! Get your gla... We got to get into it. We got to get into the Chicago accent. I've worked so hard to get rid of it. But now I don't even know. When I try to do it, I, I have problems even making it happen on purpose. A bunch of fucking jag bags. Hot, fresh gladiator blood. Get your hot, fresh gladiator blood here. I don't know if any of that's going to work. Let's just do one more for posterity's sake. Hot, fresh gladiator blood. Get your hot, fresh gladiator blood here.